Good evening, and welcome to the second of our third uh, three-lecture three, uh, series by Alan Wolf. I'm up here to introduce the introducer to Alan Wolf, who's going to be Sean Wolens, um, who's in the uh, Department of History. And uh, Sean will come up and introduce the second lecture um, right now. I must say, I've never been introduced as an introducer before. That's really, this is class. Um, this is really amazing. Um, welcome to you all tonight to tonight's Spencer Trask lecture. Um, those of you who were here last night know this already. I'll be a little redundant. Um, we're here to hear Alan Wolf, who is professor of political science and director of the Boise, I want to get that correct, Boise. It's, it's more French than not. The Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life at Boston College. His most recent books include The Transformation of American Religion, How We Actually Practice Our Faith, and One Nation After All, published in 1998, <clears throat> a book I must say that I've returned to in recent days for solace as well as instruction. Um, Alan is a contributing editor of The New Republic and The Wilson Quarterly, he writes often for those publications, as well as for Commonweal, the New York Times, Harper's, the Atlantic Monthly, I could go on, um, the Washington Post, other magazines and newspapers of national and international renown. Um, it's a real pleasure to be introducing Alan tonight because he is, uh, by my lights, one of the most sophisticated and nuanced um, interpreters of the nation's political condition, social condition, working in recent years mostly about religion and understanding how we practice our faith, as you can tell by, our, by the title of his book, but more than that, getting at much deeper kinds of questions, um, uh, social and political. What he doesn't remember, and I know this now because I walked in, he doesn't remember this at all, 24 years ago, Alan was also present at one of, I won't say the most, but one of my most embarrassing political moments. Um, I've had a lot of embarrassing political moments, but Alan was there for one of them. <clears throat> With maybe two weeks to go in the 1980 election, we were actually on a radio panel together in New York discussing politics in the forthcoming election. And I boldly and quite emphatically predicted that the winner would be President Jimmy Carter. Um, my friends will tell you that my powers of prediction have not improved. I've backed more liberal losers than I care to remember. I haven't always gotten it wrong. How could you get Michael Dukakis wrong? I mean, he was going to go down. Though I did get it wrong this year, and how did I get it wrong this year? Right up to about 9 o'clock at night on Tuesday did I get it wrong. But never since 1980 have I made the mistake of being wrong before a large radio audience. <laughs> never. Um, and I recall that evening more than two decades ago um, in penance on, on Tuesday night. Some of the older members of the audience, people my age and older, may remember the great actress Tallulah Bankhead. Tallulah Bankhead was also a rabid New York Giants baseball fan. Truly, truly a New York Giants baseball fan. And one year, and the Giants never won the pennant, one year she vowed to stop going to the polo grounds because she thought that she brought the team bad luck. I sort of feel this way about the Democratic Party. Um, she figured that she wouldn't go to the polo grounds. Sure enough, the Giants win the pennant in 1951. Then she figured she'll stop rooting altogether a couple of years later, and sure enough, they won the World Series. 
So in the spirit of Tallulah Bankhead, I'm going to shut up for a while and listen to, among others, Alan Wolf, who by anybody's estimation is truly one of the most thoughtful and searching critics of the American political and cultural condition. Last night, Alan explained the difference between American goodness and American greatness and why, for misbegotten reasons, we've retreated from the second to affirm the first. In tonight's lecture, he will explore how and why American conservatives, despite their soaring rhetoric, have sold America short by abdicating the national purpose. Those of you who are liberals out there, tomorrow night, you get yours. So don't sit too confidently. But tonight, he's going to put the conservatives up before us. The title of his lecture <clears throat> more or less explains his theme, How American Conservatives Came to Think Small. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to present to you Professor Alan Wolf. Well, it's true. I don't remember your prediction, uh, but I can tell you that you're not alone in predicting this one wrong. Um, the only difference between you and me is, is that I'm spending the semester in Europe, so I'm six hours later. So I was predicting wrong all through the night, uh, because when it was 9 o'clock here, it was 3 o'clock in the morning there, and uh, it, it was still looking pretty good at that time. But I not only predicted the results wrong, I predicted everything wrong. I mean, every single thing I said was wrong. I said, the polls won't matter this time. Well, the polls got it pretty close. I, it was just, uh, so I shouldn't be here at all. Uh, but the invitation was long. Uh, and besides, you're a historian, and I'm trying to be a historian of sorts, and so we can take the long view. And uh, um, maybe it doesn't look so uh, grim in, in the long view. Uh, anyway, thanks again, and thank you, Sean, for the introduction. I, I have to say that uh, I've given a lot of lectures in my life, but I've actually never given three in a row, or three nights one after another, so that's a new experience for me. And uh, um, I was going to spend a few minutes telling the people who weren't here last night what I said last night, but you sort of did that for me, I, and I appreciate that. Um, I am talking about two strains in American political culture and American political thought, one which prioritizes the good over the great and one which prioritizes the great over the good, one which talks about how America should be special and virtuous and pure um, and uh, uh, seek to create uh, in its own understanding a better world and another that says that America should be strong and powerful and capable of serving the needs of its citizens, uh, even if to do so uh, requires that we use uh, less than perfect and less than virtuous means. And in elaborating this, um, I uh, essentially am making the argument uh, that I'm against goodness uh, and in favor of greatness. And I think goodness gets us into an awful lot of trouble. Um, it sounds good, I must say, and who wants to be bad, but um, uh, the pursuit of goodness through political ends, as Max Weber and others have warned us, can of often lead to catastrophe, and that we would be better off uh, for the world and for ourselves if we paid more attention to greatness than to goodness. I defined greatness last night, I'll just say very briefly, as uh, involving three things. Uh, the um, uh, ability to articulate a vision of American purpose, uh, the two most prominent of those visions being the belief in liberty and equality and some sense of what they mean, 
um, and how they relate to one another. Secondly, the willingness to support the creation of national institutions, such as national, the idea of a national citizenship or of a nation itself that can transform those ideals into actual realities. And then thirdly, some willingness to understand and acknowledge a role for the United States in the world in pursuit of trying to bring those objectives uh, where appropriate to, to others. Um, and um, what I want to do tonight is to compare uh, against that ideal, against that notion of uh, greatness, uh, a number of contemporary conservative writers and thinkers who obviously have had a significant impact on our politics in recent years, um, and uh, to say, essentially, as we've already been told, that when we actually look at what they advocate, um, uh, I think, anyway, it is shocking to see the degree to which greatness as an ideal for the United States has actually retreated from their perspective in uh, a favor of some, something else. The something else may vary from one thinker to another, but whatever it is, it isn't greatness as I've outlined it. Now, uh, where to begin? There are a number of interesting conservative writers in this country and so on. Uh, I begin with one who, in many ways, um, uh, whose experiences have produced uh, a great deal of the polarization that's been taking place in the United States because when we try to argue when did the culture war begin, uh, uh, often we're told that it began with an attempt to uh, name a man named Robert Bork to the United States Supreme Court. And Robert Bork, uh, to me, is an interesting thinker to start with uh, because Bork, in his uh, uh, testimony before Congress and in his writings, has been a firm believer in the idea of original intent, that the Constitution means what those who authored it said it means and nothing more. And this idea of original intent seems to be a very, very powerful idea. Uh, President Bush mentioned it uh, a couple of times during the debates. Uh, he has said uh, very, very frequently uh, that he will appoint judges to the courts, not only the Supreme Court, but other courts that do not interpret the law, but apply the law as is written. Uh, he specifically singled out Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas as two judges that, in his view, carry out this idea, and Scalia and Thomas are, in a sense, the, the, the son and the grandson of Robert Bork, in the sense that their nominations followed from uh, uh, the, uh, the Bork controversy. So this seems to be a very powerful idea among conservatives, this idea that the Constitution means what it says and that it is not the job uh, of judges to interpret uh, what it means. Now, when conservatives like Bork talk about this way, their model of what's the wrong way to interpret the Constitution is usually thought of as the Warren Court, that Earl Warren, a Republican, by the way, uh, is identified by them as sort of the exact opposite of what they believe in, because in their view, Warren was uh, someone who read his own views into the Constitution and essentially used the Constitution as a tool to further his own particular objectives. But anyone who knows uh, American constitutional law knows that the real enemy of the idea of original intent was the third Chief Justice of the United States, and by all accounts, the greatest Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall. Uh, because Marshall was the one who truly took a document and read into it things that just obviously were not there. 
Uh, brilliantly, in many ways, his, his uh, power of, of his opinions uh, uh, continues until the present time, um, but um, uh, clearly uh, uh, used his position as Chief Justice to say things about the Constitution that I think any strict reading of the Constitution would have to claim just wasn't in the document. Um, for Bork, this is a problem, by the way, uh, uh, because Bork is a great admirer of the fact that John Marshall was a conservative. And John Marshall, indeed, is one of the most conservative thinkers in the American political tradition. So how do you deal with this? How do you deal with If you're, like Bork, a conservative and you want a strict interpretation of the Constitution, but this great conservative hero stretched the Constitution beyond recognition, how do you sort of reconcile that? Bork does write in one of his books in dealing with this problem, he says, an explanation of some sort is required. And to me, those words of some sort indicate that he's going to provide a pretty lame explanation. And indeed, I find it very lame and unpersuasive. What he says is that, well, Marshall was justified in stretching the Constitution because at the time we were dealing with a crisis. And in periods of crisis, maybe it's justified to stretch the Constitution. The only problem with that is that in all of his writings on topics other than original intent, Robert Bork thinks that the United States is facing the most serious crisis in its history now. In fact, not only the most serious crisis in its history, but the most serious crisis that any nation has ever faced at any time in the history of the world. Uh, Those are his exact words. He says uh, that all of Western civilization quote, is in peril in ways not previously seen. And if you take a sort of Borkian reading of Bork, if words are actually meant to mean what they seem to say they mean, he's essentially saying that nothing, Nazism, communism, nothing has ever been, uh, 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 the world has never been as in peril as it is uh, uh, at the present time. Now, surely under these kinds of circumstances, if you believe, as Bork does, that the crisis facing the country is uh, that we are about to, again, his words, to slide into a modern high-tech version of the Dark Ages, perhaps you ought to interpret the Constitution in ways to prevent that. That's probably what Scalia and Thomas had in mind, because they, as we all know, they stretched the Constitution well beyond its meaning in the famous case of Bush versus Gore, uh, when they interpreted the Constitution in a way to justify the candidate that they favored uh, as president, and they found rights in the Constitution that they themselves had never found before, and they also said these rights apply only in this case, uh, and we all know what happened as a result. Actually, compared to them, Bork is a model of consistency. Bork was highly critical of Bush versus Gore uh, because he believed that it would set precedents that, uh, you know, that, that would allow future courts to stretch the meaning of the law. So you could admire Bork for his consistency. But as I tried to say last night, consistency uh, in terms of adherence to principle is not necessarily always uh, a good thing to have in politics. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm not, in this case, a particular admirer of, uh, of, of Bork's consistency. Why this emphasis on original intent? What's it all about? Um, I think in some ways it is a kind of recognition uh, that um, greatness is really a possibility in the world, uh, that there may be certain circumstances in certain situations where greatness will emerge, that leaders will respond to specific circumstances and evoke ideas of greatness. And the Borkian emphasis on original intent is essentially a method of saying that they shouldn't be allowed to do that. 
um, that when they are so tempted to do that, the idea of applying the Constitution as literally uh, 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 written uh, should be invoked uh, as if there might be a great leader in any one person, uh, and we want to sort of close that down uh, before uh, it uh, uh, becomes possible. In any case, Bork uh, uh, does not believe uh, that uh, uh, the United States is a very nice place. Uh, he uh, writes about the United States with dripping contempt and venom, uh, and um, in uh, a particularly inflammatory essay that he published in the magazine First Things, a magazine edited by Father Richard John Newhouse, who I think was recently here at this university. Uh, uh, Bork talked about uh, whether or not citizens of what he called the American regime should even give legitimacy uh, to the government of the United States. And in that article, he says that he came home one night after a particular Supreme Court decision that he didn't like, and his wife said to him, you know, Bob, those judges are criminals. And he said, and he writes this in his book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, that he scratched his head and he said, you know, my wife is right. These are outlaws. The Supreme Court judges are outlaws. And democratic citizens should have the right to resist the decisions of an unjust and illegitimate uh, Supreme Court. That's pretty heavy language. Uh, it was language that provoked a number of conservatives who were associated with the magazine First Things to actually resign from the editorial board in protest against that kind of language. Uh, two of the most prominent were the historian Gertrude Himmelfarb uh, and the um, uh, political scientist Walter Burns, uh, who said, well, this is going too far. This is like, for them, it was like the 1960s all over again. Uh, and I think they were right about that. There is a kind of, um, Bork in one point in his books talks about how people of goodwill in the United States, people like him and his friends, should essentially withdraw from the society and create alternative institutions, um, uh, like homeschooling for children and so on. And, and there really is a kind of parallel. Those of you who were devotees of the 1960s may remember somewhat obscure names these days, but Theodore Rozak and Charles Reich and other people who, who talked about uh, how we needed to withdraw and create our own communes. Um, and there's a similar sort of language in Bork that America has just become so corrupt and so awful uh, that uh, um, um, this regime, this is a favorite word of a number of conservative writers, this word regime, that this regime should be uh, uh, resisted. Now, you may think that this kind of language with its harshness toward the United States would sort of be about as uh, um, far as any conservative writer could go uh, in thinking uh, of this country as something other than great. But in fact, uh, if you thought that, you would be wrong. Uh, there are voices in the American conservative tradition that are even more uh, 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 harsh than uh, Bork, because Bork is talking about the necessity to um, not interpret the Constitution, but to accept the Constitution itself as if every word in it is precious. But not all American conservatives have been willing to accept the Constitution itself. Our greatest, without doubt, the greatest conservative thinker in our history, John C. Calhoun, was not willing to accept the Constitution uh, itself. He was willing to kind of agree to the Constitution because he believed that it was the best deal that the South could get at the time. Uh, but then when the population in the United States began to change and when the South began uh, to lose some of its influence, he had second thoughts uh, about the Constitution. 
um, and uh, had no particular, he didn't view it as a sacred document. Uh, he thought it was quite changeable uh, 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 in a book published by Princeton University Press, one of my favorite books. Uh, the law professor, Sanford Levinson, talks about uh, fundamentalist Protestant and Catholic theories of interpreting the Constitution, uh, like the, the, you know, with Bork and others being sort of the literalists. You know, that it's exactly what it says, just like the Bible is exactly what it means. Uh, uh, so if, if Robert Bork is sort of a fundamentalist, saying the Constitution is exactly what it means, Calhoun and his tradition are actually atheists. The Constitution is not a sacred document. Um, it's not sort of been handed down from on high, and if it doesn't serve the interests that uh, we think should, it should be served, it should simply be changed. And Calhoun had all kinds of interesting ideas and ways of changing it. Uh, he was a great tinkerer w with the Constitution, uh, but he did not particularly revere it. He did not revere the Federalist Papers either, um, and did not assume that the Federalist Papers were some kind of sacred text as well. Now, Calhoun actually has a kind of fascinating history in contemporary conservative thought. There's been a kind of almost adoration uh, of Calhoun by certain kind of writers. Not all of them are conservatives. Uh, Gary Wills has had this long fascination with Calhoun uh, and with some of Calhoun's disciples. Uh, Calhoun's most uh, well-known contemporary, I guess he died a number of years ago, but most contemporary disciple was a, a Yale University political scientist named Wilmore Kendall. Uh, those of you who uh, uh, like to see political science professors portrayed in novels by Saul Bellow might be interested to know that Ravelstein, which is presumably based on Alan Bloom, was not the first time that Saul Bellow wrote a book about a, a fictional romantic play about a political science, conservative political science professor. Uh, Mr. Mosby's Memoirs, a short story or novella by Saul Bellow, was uh, about uh, Wilmore Kendall. Uh, uh, than uh, at Yale. And, and Kendall uh, um, is, uh, he's not a Calhounian in the sense that um, um, he was a defender of slavery, uh, but he is very much a Calhounian in the way he thinks about um, Abraham Lincoln uh, in, in particular. Kendall's most famous for the idea uh, that um, Abraham Lincoln essentially derailed the uh, 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 meaning of uh, America when he introduced equality as uh, a fundamental notion that the United States uh, had to take uh, seriously. Uh, derailed is exactly the term that, that Kendall uses. That Lincoln, in his view, was the great enemy uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of the United States because what Lincoln did was essentially to go back to a period earlier than the Constitution, to the Declaration of Independence, and to elevate the Declaration of Independence to a status that it never had before, uh, in American life, because the Declaration of Independence has ringing language about equality that the Constitution, before the adoption of the 14th Amendment, did not have. It was only with the adoption of the 14th Amendment that the Constitution endorsed some of the ideas about equality that are found in the, in the Declaration. So from Calhoun's perspective, this attempt to appropriate uh, the Declaration of Independence uh, uh, that, 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 that uh, uh, Lincoln did in his uh, magnificent rhetoric was uh, where the United States started to go on the wrong track. Um, Lincoln, as uh, in, in Kendall's view, a kind of an authoritarian um, uh, and so on. And uh, for reasons I've never understood, um, Gary Wills is just fascinated by this whole argument. And even though Gary Wills is sort of 
started out as a writer for National Review, as did Joan Didion uh, and a number of other people, by the way. Uh, he um, uh, hasn't given up in some way. This kind of reappears constantly uh, in, in his writings. Um, Kendall has a strong following among some contemporary conservative writers uh, who, who believe that equality uh, is a mistake um, and that the language of equality uh, is a mistake. Um, and uh, many of these writers uh, are identified with uh, the South, uh, Calhoun, Calhoun's part of the world. Um, and um, uh, this whole strain of thought constitutes an important strain in, in American conservatism. There is, for example, a very, very interesting and important book published in 1948 by Richard Weaver uh, called Ideas Have Consequences, a title that's been used by all kinds of people from all kinds of uh, uh, points of view, uh, um, that uh, constitutes a sort of defense of the South, uh, precisely on the grounds that the South was less committed to the idea of equality than the other regions of the United States, and that's what made the South a good place, and that's why we should admire the South, because it resists the trends toward equality uh, that uh, the rest of the country um, uh, is pursuing. Um, I like Richard Weaver's book because, for me, it raises a very, very interesting sort of question. Uh, like many agrarian-type conservatives and like many defenders of the South and its way of life, uh, Richard Weaver is persuaded that there's something fundamentally wrong with modernity, or with the modern world, that modernity, by uprooting organic southern folkways and so on, modernity carries with it uh, 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 awful consequences. On the other hand, America is sort of the embodiment of modernity in many ways. So if you hate modernity, and if America, if America is the embodiment of modernity, uh, I mean, if you hate modernity and if America is the embodiment of modernity, don't you have to hate America, which is an odd conclusion for conservatives to reach, uh, but it seems to follow logically from some of the premises that they begin with. And you, you really sort of see this in Richard Weaver. Uh, 1948, the year he published his book, was the height of the beginning of the Cold War and um, um, all the uh, uh, issues that were arising over Berlin and the division of Europe and so on. Uh, and uh, for someone like Weaver, who is a libertarian and a defender of the free market, there's an odd worship of the Soviet Union in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, as if the Soviets know what they're doing. He doesn't like what they're doing, but he admires the fact that they seem to know what they're doing. In fact, as I'll point out, this comes up over and over again in conservative writers. This, uh, you see it in a number of contemporary thinkers or writers or activists like Dick Armey, the former congressman from Texas, this admiration for dictatorships because at least they have a sense that, that, that they know what they're doing. Um, when uh, uh, um, uh, Weaver uh, uh, writes about the United States, there really is this sense that uh, um, um, Americans are spoiled brats, he writes throughout his book, that uh, uh, they, you know, they just um, they want material things. Uh, they're dissatisfied with Consumption. They can be bought off so easily with goods and all these things. Americans are actually, in 1948, sort of about to engage in a binge of consumption uh, through uh, the rapid post-war economic growth that would eventually uh, take over the United States. And uh, uh, we were sort of anticipating this and casting uh, a, a great frown upon it. 
Um, it's almost as if he knew uh, that uh, later on, uh, Richard Nixon would have a debate with Nikita Khrushchev in a kitchen in which Richard Nixon would point to the appliances in the kitchen and say, see, this is what makes capitalism great. And you could just see Weaver saying, oh, that's, you know, those are material goods and modern things and so on. Um, there was a fascinating, at least for people like me, a fascinating little episode that occurred in 1981. Everybody else in the world has completely forgotten about it, except Sean, I'm sure hasn't. Uh, if he remembers what happened in 1980, he certainly remembers this incident. But in 1981, uh, President Ronald Reagan, who actually won the election that Sean predicted uh, Jimmy Carter would win, uh, hate to remind you, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, tried to appoint someone named M.E. Bradford uh, to uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities, to be chairman of the National Endowment for Humanities. And M.E. Bradford was a student of Richard Weaver's and Wilmore Kendall's, and suddenly uh, uh, became a kind of national figure. He was at the University of Dallas, a very, very, very conservative Catholic school in, in Texas. Um, and uh, was, you know, for years he'd been writing articles in these southern kinds of publications, um, and suddenly he's in the limelight, and people go back and look at his articles. And they're quite fascinating because his articles, in the spirit of uh, Wilmore Kendall and Richard Weaver, essentially constituted an attack on Abraham Lincoln uh, and the Lincoln-esque ideals of equality. Uh, Emmy Bradford had written that Abraham Lincoln was uh, touched by a Bonapartist sense of destiny, uh, that he denounced the millenarial infection that Abraham Lincoln had spread, accused him of uh, rhetorical Manicheanism, um, uh, 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 thought that Abraham Lincoln was a dictator. Uh, you know, you can imagine, this is a country that had a monument to Abraham Lincoln, and somehow the guy, the, the notion that someone had written like this about one of our great embodiments of the idea of American greatness uh, was a little bit too much. Uh, Bradford never got the uh, nomination. Um, actually, conservatives, neoconservatives, opposed it. William Bennett, in particular, took the leadership in opposing Bradford. Uh, when you get into the conservative world, there are neoconservatives and paleoconservatives, and the paleoconservatives were sometimes border on being anti-Semitic, and the neoconservatives uh, tend to be uh, philo-Semitic. And so all of these things kind of came to the, came to the uh, core, and uh, uh, um, Bennett was essentially able to stop Bradford's nomination. But for a brief time, affectionados of political theory uh, 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 were able to witness a relatively obscure thinker, but someone who in many ways embodies um, a, a, a fairly widespread set of assumptions um, uh, about uh, the fact that uh, Abraham Lincoln was really a, a force for evil um, and uh, a potential dictator in the making. Um, you all remember that there was a senator from North Carolina named Jesse Helms, uh, there was another senator from North Carolina named John P. East, um, and before he was a senator, John East was a political scientist at, uh, I think, East Carolina University, and he wrote the prefaces to um, 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 some of these authors uh, and so on. So in some ways, uh, the Borkian strain of original intent is actually a more moderate idea because it does review the Constitution than uh, this alternative or second strain of conservative thought, uh, uh, this sort of anti-Lincoln-esque strain, which essentially says that if the Constitution is going to be 
uh, uh, interpreted in a way that's going to incorporate the spirit of the Declaration of Independence within it, and then is going to be amended by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to guarantee the idea of equal national citizenship for all, then the only thing a conservative should do is to reject the Constitution entirely. And, and that strikes me as a uh, um, uh, even more radical position against the idea of American greatness that can be found uh, in the American right. It's all based, of course, on the idea of the South as having a distinct way of life that needs to be uh, protected. Ideas that can resonate with other thinkers, with Eugene Genovese, for example, who's devoted uh, much of his latter career um, to, among other things, writing sympathetically about Emmy Bradford and uh, Richard Weaver uh, and, and, and others. South itself has not really been all that willing to cooperate with this deification that one finds among people who believe in kind of this southern exceptionalism. Uh, three out of every ten Americans now live in the states of uh, the old Confederacy, um, and uh, the South has been transformed uh, by a, uh, 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 an industrial revolution in recent years that has pretty much destroyed all the sense of an organic community of different from the rest of the capitalist world that Weaver and Bradford and Kendall and these other thinkers uh, admired. I can't imagine uh, Richard Weaver, if he were alive today, being all that happy if he were to be plucked down in the uh, North uh, Carolina's Research Triangle Park uh, or an Epcot Center, uh, he'd probably feel as welcome there as he would if he were plucked down in Yankee Stadium. But then again, I wouldn't feel all that <laughs> comfortable or plucked down in Yankee Stadium being a firm Boston Red Sox fan, and at least we won that election. Um. Watch it. <laughs> it's interesting what's happened uh, to conservative thought uh, as the South has uh, undergone this transformation. Um, um, the, uh, uh, there's been, uh, as it's obvious, uh, significant political shifts uh, taking place uh, uh, as a result of this. Um, once upon a time, the Democratic Party uh, was guaranteed almost all the Senate seats in the South. Now the Republican Party is guaranteed almost all the Republican seats in the South. Uh, since the Republican Party is the party of Abraham Lincoln, um, on, the, uh, on the surface, this should be a good thing, uh, because Lincoln in my, is a hero in my pantheon of advocates of national greatness, and the Republican Party that he stood for in the 19th century was a party that was strongly committed to the idea of national citizenship, whereas the Democratic Party in the middle of the 19th century was a hopelessly reactionary party uh, that uh, put the defense of provincial uh, uh, ideas at, at its heart. And so the fact that this, especially the southern wing of the Democratic Party, which was the very reactionary part of the party, has been replaced by the Republican Party in the South from the viewpoint of a kind of national greatness standpoint should be good news. But actually, when you look under the surface, nothing has changed. Um, what's happened is that the Democrats in the 19th century, which were kind of the party that stood against the idea of national citizenship, are now the party that stands for national citizenship. And the Republicans, who were the party that stood for it in the 19th century, are now the party that stands against it. So in shifting parties from Democrats to Republicans, the South actually hasn't shifted its ideology at all. It's still very much uh, a, a, an ideology that has strong questions and reservations about ideas about equality, 
They've just been expressed now in a different political party uh, than they, than they uh, used to be. Part of this transformation in the South has been a, uh, a significant decline in the use of race as a way of perpetuating uh, white rule in the South. Uh, clearly, there, uh, I mean, race still lurks beneath the surface. And every now and then you'll get something like the controversy that erupted around Trent Lott uh, and his connections to white citizens councils and so on. And the sort of the older South will be revealed that way because after all, nearly all these Southern Republicans used to be Democrats. Um, and uh, used to be Democrats that were elected to office on the basis of segregation uh, or, or, or racists, uh, racist regimes. But still, there's clearly been an overt decline in that kind of politics. The major issues um, that uh, uh, Southern uh, conservatives speak to now are much more issues involving economics rather than race. Uh, and you do see that in the shift from Trent Lott to Bill Frist, who's already making noises that he would like to be our next uh, president. Um, the, Bill Frist, as conservative as you can get, but, you know, he, he doesn't come um, clothed with all the his South's history of, uh, 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 of racial demagoguery. He seems cleansed of that uh, to a significant degree, and it, it doesn't really talk about race. It talks about other kinds of issues entirely. Now, again, from the standpoint of uh, uh, America and its sense of purpose, the decline of the, the use of race as a way of dividing the South from the rest of the country ought to be a good thing. Uh, but in some ways, it's not at all, um, because uh, when the South defended a system of racial segregation and racial superiority, it did so on what I would call contingent grounds. Essentially, the position of Southern writers who were defending a distinct Southern way of life was that we want our way of life protected, but only in the South. You in the North can do whatever you want. All we want is the protection of our particular vision of a good society, which happened to be a racist vision for us. But now that economics is the dominant logic, that contingency has disappeared. Now the position is that what's good for the South, that is a low-wage, non-union economy, should be good for everybody. Um, and indeed, the rest of the country has become remarkably more like the South in some ways than the South has become more like the rest of the country. Uh, because the South's way of competing in the world is increasingly the only way uh, to compete in the world, and that is by essentially trying to operate without labor unions and by driving the cost of labor or wages down to as low as you possibly can. Uh, so there is this interesting way in which the South, uh, very, very patient they tend to be in the South, and you know, they waited for years uh, to uh, lost the Civil War, uh, but then spent a, a kind of a hundred years acknowledging that um, uh, they didn't necessarily have to lose it after all. Uh, they could sort of keep something like what they lost for a very, very long time. Uh, for a hundred years, they kept a system of racial segregation in place in the South, uh, which wasn't slavery, uh, but wasn't the kind of freedom that the Civil War was fought for. I think what's happening now is a very, very similar sense of patience with respect to the New Deal. South never really liked the New Deal. Some did. I mean, Lyndon Johnson and uh, obviously and there, there is a southern tradition in the places like Texas and northern Alabama of wanting big Tennessee Valley Authority projects and things like that. 
Uh, but generally speaking, the, the sentiment among Southern politicians is that the New Deal uh, was a mistake. Um, I mentioned Richard Army before, and Richard Army uh, has written that the only difference between the New Deal and the Soviet five-year plan and the Chinese great year forward uh, was that the communists, again, knew what they were doing. Uh, it's an amazing kind of language, but you know, there's a sense that the New Deal was a terrible mistake. But let's wait, let's wait. And now, 70 years later, we can unravel the New Deal just as we unraveled uh, the 14th Amendment. Um, and um, um, that is, in a sense, what I think we are uh, about to witness uh, with uh, the arrival to power of a Republican Party, strongly um, uh, Southern in its orientation. Dick Armey uh, is from Texas. Uh, George W. Bush is from Texas. Uh, uh, Tom DeLay is from Texas. Um, some people say that, uh, uh, like, for example, Michael Lind, the writer Michael Lind, has said that we've had conservative presidents, and we've had presidents from Texas, but we've never had a Texas conservative as president until George W. Bush. Um, and uh, that means something. Uh, here's what the Texas, uh, the Republican Party platform uh, in Texas says. This is from the actual Republican platform. I mean, this is the major party in Texas. Platforms are supposed to mean something. It says um, that the United States is a Christian nation, uh, that uh, the platform calls for the abolition of federal agencies involved in activities not originally intended to be delegated to the federal government under a strict interpretation of the Constitution. And this is essentially all the economic reforms throughout all of American history should be abolished. Uh, the idea that the United States is a Christian, and then the unofficial majority platform of a major state in the United States. Now, Texas, this is what Texas Republicans are like, uh, and uh, uh, this is the environment that may not necessarily have uh, been completely determinative for President Bush, but I guarantee you it's completely determinative for Tom DeLay, uh, who believes these things. I have absolutely no doubt that Tom DeLay believes that the United States is indeed a Christian nation, uh, that all federal agencies should be stripped uh, of their uh, authority, and, and so on. Um, it's a form, uh, essentially, of uh, uh, applying some of the ideas that have been lying around uh, conservative uh, quarters for a long time, um, uh, that have just simply never accepted the innovations uh, such as the 14th Amendment and the New Deal, the sort of two major uh, a number of people argue that the 14th Amendment and the New Deal were the two major amendments to the American Constitution, that the 13th, 14th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were explicit amendments. The New Deal was not an explicit amendment, but amounted, Bruce Ackerman at Yale argues, it amounted to essentially a new Constitution. And, and this is something that uh, uh, there are lots of people in the United States determined uh, to resist. Um, I don't want to scare you, uh, but uh, um, uh, there are some appointments to our courts uh, that are about to be made, and uh, uh, the um, uh, president will be looking, uh, when he makes those appointments, to an organization called the Federalist Society, which is very involved in promoting conservative judges. Uh, the word federalist is an interesting choice of a word for uh, this organization. John Marshall was a federalist. Um, John Adams uh, was a Federalist. Um, they were believers in a strong national government, Marshall in particular. But that's not what federalism means. 
for the Federalist Society. Federalism for the Federalist Society actually is the anti-Federalist position at the founding of the United States. It's states' rights um, and uh, breaking down of the authority of the national government. Uh, and um, Supreme Court, at least for a while, was very, very interested in this idea. Um, there was a series of cases beginning in 1995 with a, a, a case called United States versus Lopez, in which the U.S. Supreme Court began for the first time since the New Deal to declare federal legislation unconstitutional. Uh, Lopez uh, threw out and declared unconstitutional an act of Congress that banned the use of firearms within school uh, around schools. And the court ruled that that was a usurpation. Federal government had no business uh, banning firearms. This was strictly a matter for state and local governments. Uh, the city of Bern versus Flores threw out and declared unconstitutional an act of Congress called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's actually a terrible act. Uh, whether it's unconstitutional or not is another issue. Um, the um, uh, Supreme Court threw out uh, portions, in fact, the cru crucial portions of what was called the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act, a number of uh, absolutely unprecedented uh, in our time decisions because there really had been a kind of understanding that with the New Deal settlement that the Supreme Court would leave Congress free to legislate in the national interest and that while uh, state laws and city ordinances would be declared unconstitutional, federal legislation passed by you know, deliberation in the Congress would be left untouched. Usually, uh, declaring laws that passed by Congress unconstitutional is called judicial activism, and this is presumably what people like Robert Bork were against. But in this case, um, you heard very few protests coming from conservative quarters because what was essentially being involved here was repealing the, the New Deal. Interestingly enough, uh, two of the judges started to have reservations about this line of cases. And the last couple of cases dealing with federal authority in these matters is going exactly the opposite way. Uh, the court refused to declare unconstitutional portions of the Family and Medical Leave Act in 2003. And at least at the moment, there seems to be a sense that the court went too far. Um, some conservatives were appalled by these decisions. Uh, in particular, one of my favorite writers on American law, a man of deep conservative convictions and uh, uh, um, uh, someone uh, uh, I admire greatly is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, John Noonan uh, by name, and uh, uh, he wrote a little book attacking these decisions, um, saying an interesting reflection of some of Bork's language, that they do not depend on any words in the Constitution, that they are boldly innovative, that they are an attempt to politicize what should be legal matters. And Noonan's uh, uh, attack on this line of Federalist cases is, to me, very much like William Bennett's criticism of uh, Bradford or uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb's criticism of Bork. I mean, there are conservatives in America, some of whom I admire greatly, who take occasionally principled stands on things, and Noonan, Himmelfarb, and Bennett in these particular examples did so. Um, but um, Noonan uh, may actually have been underestimating the problem here because uh, um, some of the uh, uh, um, language of the court itself is really quite remarkable. Um, I was particularly struck by a sentence in a case in 1995 that involved term limits. Uh, the wording 
of a sentence uh, penned by uh, Mr. Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote this. He said, the ultimate source of the Constitution's authority is the consent of the people of each individual state, not the consent of the undifferentiated people of the nation as a whole, as if we had never had a civil war, as if John Marshall had never died, and as if John C. Calhoun were still alive. Uh, we fought a war, you know, lives lost over establishing the principle of that we were a nation with national citizenship. And here's Clarence Thomas saying, oh, no, we're not a nation. We're just a bunch of states, uh, an issue that seemingly had been resolved, but for some people never seems to die. Some of the people who are, uh, call themselves federalists um, are not federalists, not only in the sense that they're really anti-federalists, but in the sense that the whole question of government takes on an interesting coloration for them because um, uh, without getting lost in the details, uh, uh, terminology is confused, but those who identify with an organization like the Federalist Society or the Supreme Court in these decisions that I've mentioned to you, the formal position is that there are certain things the federal government should not do, like regulate handguns within a school district, but it's perfectly okay if state governments do that. Because for them, the reason why they call themselves federalists is that states have certain rights that the federal government shouldn't have. Now, states' governments are governments. Um, they may not be the national government, but they still are governments. Some American conservatives believe that all government is wrong. And it really doesn't make any difference whether the federal government is doing it or the states are doing it. If uh, regulation of the economy is taking place, then that itself is a problem. And so they're not actually federalists for that reason. Um, they don't want to turn things over to the states to regulate. They don't want any regulation whatsoever. And uh, an interesting person uh, who writes in this area, actually teaches in my department at Boston College from some time, uh, time to time, is a conservative thinker at the American Enterprise Institute named Michael Grieve. Uh, and he, this is essentially what he says, that uh, for him what federalism means is a kind of race to the bottom, uh, his term. Uh, that uh, uh, what we should do is to try to create an environment in which states will co- compete with each other to attract business. Um, and uh, therefore, states should be prevented from regulating their economy so that uh, they will engage in a kind of bargaining with business and abolish their state regulations in order to encourage more business to come there. Uh, Michael Grieve uh, uh, is a big advocate of uh, what he calls the Leave Us Alone Coalition. Uh, the term Leave Us Alone Coalition was formulated by Grover Norquist, um, uh, a man very close to the president. Grover Norquist is famous for his comment that uh, under the Republicans, government will be reduced to such a size and shrunk to such a size that we'll turn on the faucet and just wash it down out of the bathtub. Uh, and uh, Norquist is, you know, people always talk about Karl Rove, but the real affectionados say that Grover Norquist is actually the most influential uh, conservative in Washington, that his Wednesday lunches are the place you just simply have to be uh, if you want to be a player in uh, uh, Washington these days. Uh, Grover Norquist identifies the Leave Us Alone Coalition uh, as essentially everybody who doesn't like government, uh, all across the ideological spectrum, gun owners, school choice people, homeschooling groups, term limits movements, property rights groups, religious advocacy and lay organizations. The ACLU, he's perfectly happy to work with the ACLU. 
and so on. You get this odd mixture of people. Uh, some of you may have been shocked to see that the con- former congressman from Georgia, Robert Barr, who was the leader of the Clinton impeachment, and as far to the right as you can find in the Republican Party, is a fierce uh, friend of the American Civil Liberties Union in protesting the reauthorization of the Patriot Act. Uh, this kind of almost extreme libertarianism that all government is wrong and, and, and um, um, all people who don't want government in their lives should, uh, uh, should, should get together uh, to protest it. Um, um, it's um, um, really a, a kind of libertarianism rather than a kind of federalism. It's a, uh, it, it's a sense that uh, um, um, the real enemy is not how we divide power. The real enemy is power itself, that any kind of public power is a problem. Uh, and people like this were perfectly willing to use arguments uh, about federalism when it suited their purposes. But now I think they're truly revealing what they really stand for, uh, and that is a kind of pure form of libertarianism. Um, it's an interesting question whether they have an ally with Mr. Bush, um, because um, uh, the, the essential way that these kinds of libertarians understand getting what they want is through the tax cuts. And so when Mr. Bush pushes his tax cuts, he's carrying out the libertarian agenda. Um, he's uh, suggested, the president has suggested uh, at various times that he's sympathetic to the most radical ideas of this group of thinkers, the flat tax, uh, uh, which is kind of at the heart of what they're about, um, you know, the abolition of the progressive income tax, I mean, it's not just the New Deal that we're talking about. The progressive income tax was earlier than the New Deal. Um, and every now and then we sort of get some kind of hints that uh, we may be um, having something like this proposed uh, in the present uh, uh, political uh, environment. It's a pretty radical agenda, and essentially what it does involve is a recognition that American greatness has been created through the idea of government embodying the notion of the nation. Uh, and that in abolishing government, we are essentially abolishing the nation and the idea of national citizenship uh, that, uh, that, that comes along with it. The problem for libertarians with the current president is that while he is very much a libertarian uh, with respect to the revenue that government takes in, he's the exact opposite of a libertarian when it comes to expenditures. Um, he didn't veto a single I can't imagine. I mean, this is income. Uh, one of the many reasons I felt not to vote for him was he never vetoed a bill. What's the president for if he doesn't veto something? You know, Clinton vetoed a lot. I mean, presidents do. They veto things. Um, uh, of, all the, of all the actions of Mr. Bush, that's actually one of the most striking to me. It didn't matter what the pork barrel was. It didn't matter, you know, how it was just he signed off on, on everything, um, which uh, uh, some libertarians are actually aghast at. They very much admire the president for his uh, uh, tax cuts, but the uh, Keynesian side uh, of the administration is, is not something that many of them are comfortable with. And in fact, uh, sort of the leading popular libertarian writer in America, James Brovard, who writes sort of best-selling books ex- expounding libertarian ideology, is a fierce critic of Mr. Bush, uh, um, a fierce critic of the war in Iraq and the expenditures that it involved and so on. Um, the greatest libertarian in American political history was William Graham Sumner, uh, the social Darwinist thinker, uh, conservative, and by the way, atheist. We don't usually 
think of conservatives as atheists, but that has been a trend in our culture. Um, and uh, Sumner, whose book, What Social Classes Owe Each Other, and which answered nothing at all, uh, um, um, is uh, uh, really laid out the agenda. I find Sumner interesting not only because of his libertarianism, but because he was also an isolationist. Um, an isolationist who, uh, out of principle, opposed uh, the foreign the use of foreign military force because of its expense um, um, and uh, the fact that it would require government uh, to carry out. Um, and isolationism is, a, is another feature of conservative thought that has never quite gone away um, and I think is still uh, uh, possibly quite prominent uh, in uh, uh, the Republican Party in spite of the U.S. Uh, uh, military efforts in Iraq. Uh, isolationism... Um, appears uh, in various guises. Um, it's probably leading a, a exponent in contemporary American politics is uh, Patrick Buchanan, uh, who is marginalized, no longer a Republican. Um, but he uh, speaks very much out of a very, very important uh, American tradition. Uh, he likes the American First Movement of Charles Lindbergh, recently uh, elected president of the United States, and Philip Ross astonishingly uh, powerful novel, The Plot Against America. Um, uh, he tries to bring back the, the, I mean, if you read the Philip Ross book, which I urge everybody to do, and then you pick up one of Patrick Buchanan's books, I mean, you're just shocked by the uh, similarities. Um, and uh, it's almost as if the historical script was written a long time ago and Buchanan is just rewriting it uh, for the present time. Now, you know, Buchanan is marginal as I said, but uh, I'm not sure that isolationism is completely marginal. We don't know what's going to happen uh, in Iraq. Um, 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 I am spending the semester in Germany, and uh, they, they have something in Germany, how quaint it's actually quaint. They call it a peace movement. Remember, we used to have such a thing here. Uh, and uh, so I give talks, and I get questions from people who identify themselves with the peace movement. And so they say things like, you know, what do we have to do to bring peace to Iraq, in other words, withdraw U.S. troops as fast as possible. And I would say, well, hope that Mr. Bush is elected and not Kerry, which would always shock them. Uh, but so, I mean, my sense is that Bush wants out of there. Um, and he's going to just simply um, um, find some way to get out. And if the country falls into chaos, well, everything Mr. Bush does falls into chaos. And it's not going to be his responsibility. And he's just going to get out of there. Um, I certainly think that if, you know, this is in the spirit of Philip Roth, this is totally counterfactual history, but I, I certainly think that if Bush had lost, the neoconservatives would have been purged from the Republican Party in favor of the isolationists. That, After all, the neoconservatives were Democrats once. They used to work for Senator Jackson. Uh, um, they predominantly Jewish. Before they worked for Senator Jackson, they were Trotskyites. I mean, you know, this is not exactly traditional Republican material. Uh, and uh, if the neoconservative war in Iraq had cost the Republicans the presidency. I have absolutely no doubt that Tom DeLay and the others would have uh, thrown them essentially out of the party uh, and um, uh, um, uh, brought the uh, Republican Party back to the Robert Taft isolationist tradition of small government. After all, DeLay and the Republicans, Army, all of them, furiously opposed Bill Clinton's efforts to intervene in Bosnia for humanitarian reasons. Um, and had Curry been elected president, and had Curry tried to do anything uh, that involved uh, the U.S. overseas, no doubt that they would have just simply turned on a dime 
and that these people who were all for military intervention in Iraq would have had the exact opposite position. Uh, one of the troops home and, well, read, read Philip Roth. I mean, you really get a sense of, uh, the isolationist strain in, in American thought, uh, uh, from that book. Uh, so one more strain, I think, uh, of, uh, uh, of American conservatism that stands the, against the idea of American greatness. I have one final one, uh, to share with you, um, and that is the role that, uh, Christian conservatives are playing in American politics, uh, which I also think is quite fascinating. There's certainly nothing new about um, conservatives, uh, I'm sorry, about Christians having views uh, about American politics and about American purpose. Um, uh, the, the best-selling book in the United States in the 19th century was Uncle Tom's Cabin. The second best-selling book in the 19th century was Josiah Strong's book, Our Country, uh, which uh, laid out from a kind of Christian perspective, an evangelical perspective, actually, a sense of America's mission in the world. By today's terms, uh, Joseph Strong's book would be very much on the more liberal end of the political spectrum. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Strong talked about something that many American Christians have incorporated into their way of thinking, and that is the idea that the United States is a chosen nation, uh, a nation chosen to do good things in the world, uh, and therefore that Christians should strongly support their country uh, and uh, uh, be patriotic and, and so on. Um, certainly we see that today with evangelicals. Uh, uh, evangelicals are strong supporters of the military uh, for complicated theological reasons. They have a particular interest in American foreign policy in the Middle East. Uh, Tom DeLay has said uh, one of his more famous quotes, that he will never criticize Ariel Sharon under any circumstances whatsoever, that whatever Ariel Sharon wants, he gets. Uh, and so there is a kind of, uh, you know, on the surface at least, a strong sense of American identity uh, with Christian conservatives. But I think it's only on the surface. Uh, and that when you look underneath, you see almost as if, as if we see it in Robert Bork, a sense that America may not be worth saving after all and may not be a country that really serves God's purposes at all. Because there's also been a strong apocalyptic dimension to Christian thought, one that asks us to think about the realm of a more perfect world uh, that will come when Jesus returns and saves us from our sins. And you cannot really have that kind of perspective unless you think that the world is indeed in need of being saved. And if it's in need of being saved, it's because it's doing evil things that require the Lord's uh, protection. Um, and so running through this defense of the United States and this support for American militarism is a vision of America that is uh, 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 a sense that the whole thing uh, is hardly worth saving at all, uh, at least uh, uh, in this world. Um, and uh, uh, various kinds of uh, apocalyptic writers have talked about the, how the fires are going to consume us and we're sort of all going to burn. I mean, if, you, if you think that we are um, um, uh, a people that uh, uh, um, don't treat homosexuality as the sin it ought to be treated as and are moral relativists and, you know, are just going downhill in every uh, dimension possible, uh, it's very, very hard to summon up the kind of uh, love for the country uh, that advocating some idea of American greatness would, uh, would embody. 
Jerry Falwell uh, has written, he said, I love this country. I love every square foot of this land. Um, but um, uh, he also writes in just exactly the same way uh, about uh, the evil that exists uh, everywhere around us. How does he reconcile this? Well, he reconciles it, as the Texas uh, Republican platform suggests, by saying that it's really only the Christians among us uh, who uh, uh, embody the spirit uh, uh, of uh, goodness uh, that he seeks to embody. We teach patriotism as being synonymous with Christianity, as Falwell puts it, that uh, only the real Christians embody the spirit of uh, the real America. Uh, it's a kind of contingent sort of patriotism, a patriotism like Calhoun's contingencies. Calhoun would support anything as long as the South was allowed its own way of life. Falwell support anything as long as Christians are understood as having a special uh, status in the United States. Um, in any case, um, we do know uh, that uh, one of the things that conservative Christians demanded from the president in return for his support uh, was the position that the president took on stem cell research, a subject of interest to uh, Lisa over here and, and others in the room. Uh, uh, and um, um, that in itself, I think, was an interesting um, um, set of decisions that went into that. Uh, because it involves science um, and uh, uh, inevitably brought up the relationship between American greatness, scientific greatness, and Christianity um, in a, a very, very explosive mixture. Um, there has been a strong strain in evangelical Christianity of distrusting science, obviously, uh, that goes back to earlier periods and is embodied in arguments over creationism. There's been an equal disdain, by the way, you're not alone, Lee, uh, uh, in conservative Christian thought for social science. Uh, for social science, uh, the, one of the most um, interesting conservative Christian thinkers and uh, intellectuals uh, uh, was himself a libertarian, uh, trained at the Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, which is where many of uh, our early evangelicals and fundamentalists were trained. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, this sense, too, that any kind of effort to apply uh, rational uh, uh, understanding of the world, either through natural science or social science, is suspected uh, interfering with God's work. Um, it'll be an interesting question from the perspective of American greatness, whether a society that has uh, essentially decided as a political decision I think really probably for the first time in its history, I may be wrong, and there may be people in the room who know more about this than I, but I can't recall a deliberate public policy act quite as striking as the president's decision to limit research into stem cells, where a, 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 an explicit political decision was made against scientific progress. For whatever reason, and how, you know, whatever you think about the issue, it was essentially a statement that something is more important than scientific progress in this case, some idea about human life that goes through various uh, ramifications. But whatever it is, um, it does not strike me um, as a, a way of thinking about science and the role that science can play in making a, a, a country great, the way we sort of remember John F. Kennedy trying to uh, uh, embody those kinds of ideas. Well, I've shared with you uh, a, a number of different strains in American conservative thought. Uh, 
uh, tonight. Um, somewhat selective, obviously, but I did try to make the point because I think it's an important worth making and worth emphasizing um, that I'm not talking about all conservatives. And I do believe and tried to share with you some people who I believe are conservative writers who have a vision for the United States, not necessarily a vision I agree with, but have a strong sense of American greatness. And I think Himmelfarb and uh, um, uh, Bennett, um, of course, he has other problems now, uh, uh, um, do. And I you know, see that as uh, a position I don't particularly agree with, but there's certainly an argument to be made there. And uh, I think those people and I could have a, a, an interesting argument about greatness and what it would embody. There, I don't mean in using this idea of American greatness to suggest that it can only be represented by one particular ideology or one particular way of thinking. I think we need debates about it, and there's all kinds of open questions. We should be arguing with each other about our country and what our country's sense of purpose is and how it should be accomplished. And um, I'm perfectly willing to have that argument with B. Himmelfarb and Walter Burns and all these other people. Whether they'll have it with me or not is a, another question. But it's also hard to deny that there are other strains in conservative thought that are simply set against any conception of uh, transforming the United States into something that would have a sense of national purpose and that would seek to embody that sense of national purpose through the idea of equal national citizenship. Uh, that these are people who've chosen other things, whatever it is, the free market economy, the defense of sectionalism, some I think rather strange but nonetheless strongly held commitment to an idea of original intent. Uh, for those people, some other value is more important than greatness, and they believe that America, in my terminology, should seek to uh, uh, strive for, in their vision, of what a good society should be rather than a great society. Uh, for me, this does represent a retreat. It represents a, treat, a retreat from the uh, Republican Party and the conservatism that I identify with thinkers like John Marshall. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt and others who strike me in any uh, case as uh, being people either of Republican Party affiliation or of uh, um, uh, conservative temperament and conservative ideology who did stand behind the idea of us having the capability and having the uh, willingness uh, to stand for something great. As uh, Sean said, liberals are tomorrow night. Uh, thank you uh, for your attention tonight. <clears throat> Whatever. We have time. Questions? Do we have a microphone? Or no? I don't think. Oh, yeah, why don't you go ahead? You'll have some. So, yeah. Sure. There's a microphone. Oh, I see. The microphone. Okay. So um, I was wondering to what extent um, you think that this conservative trains of thought that you described were really more a reflection of their being out of power. And now that they're in the power, the rules may reverse. And for instance, the blue states yeah. may suddenly start appreciating states' rights to preserve their way of life and so on. Well, I, it's a good question, actually. Yeah. Um, for them, I mean, for some of them who are out of power, it does look very different now that they're in power. For Dick Armey, 
who I mentioned a couple of times, uh, big libertarian, let's cut government. Uh, he, he's now retired from Congress, but he was in Congress for the first two years of the Bush administration when the Republicans were just bust, you know, busting the budget and so on. And a reporter asked him, you know, what do you think about all this? Look at all the money you're spending. Uh, because Army had uh, said that we should reduce government by 50%. We should cut government in half. And here government was growing, and his response was, to the victors belong the spoils. In other words, it looks very different now that I can spend the money on me and my friends. Um, I'll be very interested in uh, whether or not uh, some of the ideas of states' rights will now begin to appeal to the left now that the right is in control of the federal government. Um, I think there's going to be a great temptation to do that. You know, there's already jokes about how maybe the Civil War wasn't such a bad idea. And, uh, um, you know, the Federalists um, did try to secede at one point in the early part of the 19th century from the, the New England should secede from the rest of the United States. Maybe we'll hear more about that. I, uh, if we do, I'll stand as strongly as I can in public against it. Um, I, I um, very, very much want to see us remain one society. Um, I think we're in a temporary period where people that uh, I believe have the wrong ideas about things are in power, but uh, you know, I, I think we, at least I feel, for me, uh, the need to uh, uh, even um, strengthen even more the notion of, of, of a kind of one nation national citizenship and, and so on. Um, where we, I'll talk about this more tomorrow night when I talk about liberals, but where are we to go in that direction? And there are a number of liberal voices, if you come tomorrow you'll hear, who, who kind of want to go back and who admire Calhoun and admire the anti-federalists. I, I think that would be a serious mistake. I guess I have a qu question on your U.S. v. Lopez. Um, basically, I th um, to my opinion, uh, Rehnquist struck that law down basically because it has nothing to do with commerce. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you basically assaulted that because essentially the government, the, the court should have no right to strike down a law of Congress. But how does that relate to a checks and balance procedure of government? Yeah. Well, not really. I mean, I, I wasn't... I wasn't criticizing that decision per se, but I was citing that decision as part of a series of decisions in which essentially a, a social contract had developed for years between the court and the Congress about uh, uh, allowing economic regulation passed by Congress to be uncontested. Uh, and that uh, was uh, changed by that decision and a series of other. Whether they're good decisions or not is a separate set of issues, but I wasn't trying to really criticize the decision per se. I, I do think it was a bad decision, uh, but that's not really central to the argument I was trying to make so much as uh, uh, just kind of a reflective of, uh, of uh, uh, a new way of thinking about the relationship between the federal government and the states that the court was, was beginning to embody. Uh, did you have, I mean, you, you, there was the last part of what, oh, checks and balances? Yeah. Um, it's similar in some ways to federalism. I mean, um, I, I'm willing to grant that a, a kind of social compact that allows Congress uh, to uh, essentially pass legislation without it being reviewed by the Supreme Court violates the principle of, of checks and balances. Um, but uh, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me. Uh, Peter. I, I think that the extent to which the present administration supports states' rights is, is actually totally selective in terms of the issue that you're talking about. If you look at uh, Ashcroft's attempts to overturn the Oregon law on uh, physician-assisted suicide, 
Um, clearly, that's not respectful of states' rights. That's the power of the federal government. Same thing on the medical marijuana issue. Uh, I think they're, they're for states' rights where they don't want the federal government to have powers, and maybe the economic area that you talked about is one. Some of the environmental issues uh, are, is another. But uh, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, maybe you, you agree with this, but I wouldn't see the, the people that you regard as influential, uh, Grove and Orquist or other, apparently having any effect on this. Uh, and as far as the power of the federal government over individuals is concerned, surely the fact that the president thinks all he has to do is sign a paper declaring someone an enemy combatant, and you can then hold them in detention indefinitely without any court being able to review them, is the most enormous uh, grab for power of the, uh, of the presidency that we can imagine. Yeah. Well, as, as you expect, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I, um, I, I learned my constitutional law in graduate school from a very distinguished uh, person. Henry J. Abraham was his name. And the one thing he would always tell us in every thing was you'll never find consistency on the issue of federalism or states' rights. It, it will always be a question of, as he put it, whose ox is being gored. And um, there's never been consistency, and you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, people who talk about states' rights and, and, and will just simply turn around and and ignore it completely. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can't really find fault with that per se because I'm not arguing for consistency on these kinds of things, but for a kind of pragmatic case-by-case thing. So I think the argument against um, uh, uh, concentrations of federal power like the president is trying to obtain with respect to Guantanamo or so on should be on the argument about the power itself and not not an argument about federalism. In this case, I'm using it because... Federalism is a term that people use to describe themselves, but as I say, they're, they're not really federalists, and so it doesn't surprise me to discover these inconsistencies. Uh, um, that's I didn't go into it in the talk tonight, but in some ways that's what's so fascinating about what's happening uh, uh, these days in, in Washington, that it's, it's kind of... Um, I mean, the market and the state are usually seen as sort of two different... Things You have one or the other, but there's a way in which we're getting more of the free market and more of the state simultaneously. Um, and it's almost as if the, the kind of inability to regulate our economic life is coming along with an ability to regulate other aspects of life that maybe represents a very dangerous combination of the two. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Well, you think he's? <laughs> are you surprised? <laughs> oh, yeah, you should you should ask somebody uh, else. Uh, you should ask Tom Frank, who wrote this book called "What's the Matter with Kansas," because Bob Dole remembers from Kansas, and uh, 
Uh, and I, I really recommend it. Uh, it's not a, it's a book that, uh, people know the book because it's gotten an awful lot of attention and, uh, uh, um, I, I can't really sort of summarize this argument, but, uh, uh, it's, there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of anger out there, uh, in, uh, uh, the United States that, uh, propelled a good deal of voting for Mr. Bush. Um, I have a harder time figuring out what the anger is all about. Um, um, and a harder time, for the same reason that I have something of a hard time understanding the people I've, uh, discussed with you tonight. At, at, at some level, I just don't understand their criticism. I mean, I certainly feel that with Bork. Um, the vision that he talks about when he talks about the United States, I mean, I get, yeah, yeah, we got some problems in the United States. I wish my students read more books and, you know, um, uh, I think the divorce rate probably is too high. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you really, um, fed me a, a number of gin and tonics, I might say that, you know, maybe there's some problems with abortion. Maybe it's not the, something that should, you know, and things like that. But to, to then say that there's, you know, this is the greatest catastrophe in the history of civilization and that our moral decline is, I mean, I look at it and say, what America is he talking about? I mean, I see lots of uh, very nice people in this country, very hardworking people. Uh, and so I can't really answer your question, because when I read these quotes that the newspapers are filled with by people who voted for Bush and who are saying, I hate those liberals and what those liberals are trying to do to me, uh, I see liberals who are relatively powerless. And uh, I mean, I do see some people who fit the stereotype, I, I have to say, but... Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not the person to ask. Uh, I... Is what's going on in America, what you discussed tonight, part of something bigger that's going on in other places in the world? And is it, what explains it? And my thought is, is it that life's gotten very complex and maybe it's trying to return to a simpler life? Yeah. Or is it just sheer greed and desire for power <laughs> by some? Um, well, I, I don't want to sound wishy-washy. Uh, we're not the only country in the world with divisions. Um, not the only country in the world in which people get angry at each other. Um, I'm spending the semester in Germany. You know, you, uh, you go to a city like Berlin, it's, in other parts of Germany, it would be viewed as, you know, as decadent as it was in the Weimar Republic and filled with, and there are Catholic and strongly Protestant parts of Germany that would, you know, talk about Berlin the way people in America sort of talk about it. On the other hand, there's nothing, I can't think of any other country undergoing anything quite like what we're undergoing at the moment. Um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, most of the world scratches their head in absolute bewilderment of what's happening in the United States right now. It, it's, it's very, very difficult to understand. Um, so it sounds to me like it's kind of a variation on the previous question. And I, again, I, I'm, I'm not sure I... I know how to answer it. I probably haven't digested enough yet um, about what happened eight days ago. And I can't believe it's only eight days ago. I'm, you know, I'm just amazed that I, the election doesn't it feel to you like it happened months ago. I mean, it does to me. I, you were going to. Well, I mentioned that in the late 70s, um, Bill Moyers had a show on PBS, and he talked about a grassroots movement in the United States of Southern Baptists and evangelical Christians to take over the government of the United States. I'm not making this up. And uh, 
It was a grassroots movement to work on a local level, and what he predicted through that show um, at that time was that they would take over House of Representatives, they would take over Congress seats, they would take over the Senate, and they would have a Christian um, leadership in the presidency. And I, it's my own opinion, and I forgive me if I insult anyone here, but I really believe that the pulpit has become a political mouthpiece in this country and that um, there's a lot of po- uh, politicking going on in churches across the country in this country. Uh, across the country on Sundays. And, I mean, today uh, we heard that the president appointed an FDA representative for women's health who's written several books about uh, menopause and prayer and how Jesus can help you conceive. And I'm not making that up. (laughs) So it's just some comments, but... uh, I, I'm really afraid, and I think that this is very real, and I don't think that it's going to go away anytime soon. Well, we, the good people of Oklahoma also elected a senator who uh, has evidently sterilized a number of teenage girls that came to him as a physician uh, pregnant, and actually in the state that is famous for Oliver Wendell Holmes' uh, famous statement about three generations of idiots being enough uh, a very sore issue uh, in the history of Oklahoma. Um, well, I don't, you know, I don't think, um, I, I'm sure there are people in the religious right that would like to take over the country, but I don't think it's foreordained that they will succeed. Um, I, but for me, the, one of the most interesting aspects of it is that the um, Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist Church, is a church that was founded on the principle of separation of church and state, that its uh, great founder, Roger Williams, uh, was one of America's greatest thinkers on the question of separation of church and state. Um, and that it is absolutely fundamental to the Baptist tradition to believe in that. Uh, without that, it's the whole, whatever degree you want to talk about what Baptists believe, nothing else would make sense uh, without that commitment. Um, and some parts of the uh, Baptist world are still very strongly committed to that. Uh, Baylor University, Baptist institution, 24 miles from the President's Ranch in Crawford, Texas, has an institute for church-state studies and um, uh, has kept alive the Baptist tradition of uh, separating them. Uh, in the late 1970s, uh, a number of key figures in the Southern Baptist Convention began to recognize that Ronald Reagan could conceivably be elected President of the United States. Um, and they literally decided that they would essentially repudiate their own historical understanding, uh, because they had a chance. Um, and they did that. Now, you know, they, they, self, they really quite consciously violated their own principle. I mean, they understood that this was what they were doing. Um, and um, it's kind of a, a fascinating little footnote to their history. Whether there remains a kind of core of the original understanding is an interesting question. Moyers himself is a Southern Baptist. Jimmy Carter, Southern Baptist. Uh, you know, so the other, the other kind of tradition uh, hasn't completely disappeared as well. But, uh, yeah, um, it, it's, it's something to worry about. Uh. Um, going on that, on that question, you, you told us earlier how 
um, the Southerners uh, in the 19th century basically wanted just to control their own society, and they weren't trying to control the rest of the United States. And as you just said, they wanted the separation between church and state. And now we've seen, we've gotten to the point where the federal government wants to try to, uh, the religious right is coming in trying to control the, the, the entire country. Has that evolution taken place just because they feel they have the power? Um, is there been a difference in their in the in the mindset now, or I mean, what what has been the cause of that? Um, it's I think it's a kind of opportunism that things look very different when you think you have the power. Uh, the uh, the Scopes trial, the events of the 1920s, uh, were were just for evangelicals just a tremendous shock. Um, they withdrew from politics um, very very strongly. They just decided that this was not a realm in which. Uh, they were going to be active. Um, and as I was saying in the previous one, I mean, for a number of uh, thinkers and leaders in that tradition, they did begin to perceive an opportunity. And uh, so I, I see it as kind of a, uh, a choosing of politics um, because, you know, this is just a kind of once-in-a-millennium opportunity to try uh, um, uh, to get their, their way. I, again, I think it's a real mistake to think that, you know, we're going to uh, uh, turn... Margaret Atwood wrote a, a, a book about The Handmaiden's Tale. Uh, I don't think that's our future um, in spite of some of these examples, but I, I know that people are thinking about that, but I would not foreordain that. Um, there have been some... Uh, for example, um, uh, in Kansas, somebody asked about Kansas. In Kansas, there were a set of school board elections in which a bunch of creationists were elected to the state school board. And essentially because nobody voted, so they dominated. They tried to change the textbooks. The very next election, people were aware of it. They were all voted out of office. I, I, I remained convinced that the fundamental ideas of these theocrats would be wildly unpopular to the degree that they are publicized and talked about, and that there's a, a tremendous obligation on the part of people who don't believe in what they believe in to do exactly what they did, um, and that is to try to mobilize public opinion. They... You know, they work best as stealth campaigns. They, they work very, very well as stealth campaigns. They work much less poorly as public campaigns. Now, in certain states, they work as public campaigns, too, but um, we still are a country, and uh, people who disagree have, have the right to argue with them. Okay, back there. Yeah. Um, you actually just touched on what I was going to ask about. You spoke a lot about the um, intellectual conservatism in legal briefs and in universities, but... I'm wondering also about the huge ascendancy in the non-intellectual and explicitly anti-intellectual. And when you were talking about the school board mm. in Kansas, I think the Texas textbook review board has had an even more, <clears throat> as an example, um, fundamental meaning in trying to change probably less government but more secular society. As, as a conservative growth, I mean, where does that, which is not in these... Eastern universities yeah. or Southern universities come from? Well, the, the, the Texas attempt to get the textbooks is a brilliant uh, move in the sense that they understand how, how uh, publishers will basically cater to any kind of pressure that's put on them, and they've been pretty successful, um, and disturbingly so. Um, um, I don't know exactly what one can do about it. I, I, you know, it certainly strikes me as uh, one other indication, and I could have brought it up as examples of uh, a great society is not one that censors its textbooks. Um, 
uh, in this way, um, and it would just provide sort of one more example. I, I also think that you're right that at some level we need to leave behind what the intellectuals are doing and, and look at the effects of these in, in these kinds of movements. So I appreciate the, uh, the example. Thank you. Thank you all for that. Thank you.